another thing and another thing and another thing and another thing welcome to another episode of and another thing my name is Jody Jenkins and my name is Tony Clement and we've now crossed the threshold, our 100th episode, of course, last week, and we're into the dawning of a new era, I guess. So. Well, 101. It's just, uh, thank you for all the positive feedback, by the way, from our listeners about the 100th episode. That was really nice to hear. Right, Jody? Yes, I received flowers. Oh, did you? I didn't receive yeah. flowers. Oh, my God. No, I, I know you didn't, but uh, I guess <laughs> I guess we know who their favorite host is. I guess so. Of I the guess show. so. Okay, well, does that well, make this? Does that mean we're on season three? Because we have a season one and a season two. Well, I don't. I've kind of lost track of the seasons because we just kept rolling in terms of uh, the episode numbers. So, I, I sure season three. Why not? Well, we'll have to tell. Uh, we'll have to tell our producer Travis to uh, to get on that. But yeah, get uh, on anyway. that. Come on, come on, Travis. <laughs> okay, we have a couple sponsors we want to thank right off the top. Of course. John Mutton and the team at Municipal Solutions, our presenting sponsor each week. You can find out more by going to municipalsolutions.ca. And Tony, I know you have more of the inner workings of Municipal (laughs) Solutions that you can share. Indeed I do, Jody. Yes, of course. Municipal Solutions is known for its development services and project management. That means development approvals, permit expediting planning services with municipalities, engineering services, architectural services. If you have a minor variance or a land severance issue, they're great for that. And of course, building permits for all your municipal solutions needs. Go to municipalsolutions.ca. And we got to give a big shout out to looneypolitics.com. Of course, home to exclusive content. Uh, specifically our podcast. There's lots of other exclusive content, yeah. there, but our podcast can be found there. And when I say our podcast, I mean episodes you can't hear anywhere else other than by becoming a member of Looney Politics. And if you use the code podcast, you will get 50% off an annual subscription, looneypolitics.com. Very easy. So make sure you go and check that out. Okay. We have an exciting guest today. I'm excited to introduce this individual. And Tony, I'm going to let you do that because he's a friend of yours. And this one will be very, very interesting. Oh, no, I'm very excited about this. You know, uh, that's the thing about And Another Thing podcast. You never know just what you're going to get because it could be politics. It could be the social trends. And of course, it could be music. So we're very delighted here at And Another Thing podcast to have Mr. Gil Moore with us today. Uh, Gil is a Canadian musician and entrepreneur. He was the drummer and a vocalist with the Canadian power rock trio Triumph and now owns Canada's biggest recording studio Metalworks in Mississauga, Ontario. Let me tell you a little bit about Triumph because uh, we are going to ask a few questions about that. Uh, Triumph had 18 gold and nine platinum uh, records uh, and is best known uh, for guitar rock classics like Lay It on the Line, uh, Magic Power, and World of Fantasy. And I guess this is why their uh, Gil is with us today. Triumph is the subject of an upcoming documentary, Triumph, Rock and Roll Machine, that premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival 
and indeed was developed by Gil. Gil, welcome to the program. Hey, nice to be here, Tony. Jody, nice to see you guys. Yeah, Greg, thanks for being here. Yeah, no, it's it's fantastic. I know you've been just run off your your feet since the uh, film festival, uh, and uh, I guess I guess my first thought about it is, you know, that documentary, which is really a documentary about your and 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 the rest of the band's lives, must have brought back just a torrent of memories. So, uh, talk a little bit about that and about the process of getting this documentary done. Well, you know, the directors have have a vision and the writer has a vision. And, uh, you know, it's 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 interesting to see that narrative develop, because what I see as they're putting it together is essentially a bunch of puzzle pieces. And it reminded me of, you know, when you're I don't know, when you get do your first complicated puzzle when you're five or six years old, and it's this big, massive puzzle piece. You have no idea how to fit them together into a picture. Um you know, and, and complete it. And and that's the way I felt about this because it's all done in little chunks and pieces. They did a lot of research. And of course, you don't really see the research. It's just kind of vapor until, you know, the film is finished. It had a whole, uh, a whole slew really of, of um, animations that weren't developed until the very, very end of the post-production phase. So any rough cuts that we saw or rushes would include these blank screens just a black screen that would say animation goes here as a wow. sort of a placeholder so again even though we're getting closer to the end of the film it's still like a you know you can't really follow the journey until it's completed and then of course when they mix the audio that makes a huge difference but that right. all comes together quite late in the ball game and uh, so it, and it took several years to to do covid obviously slowed things down but at the premiere, um, that was the first time I saw the film complete with all the details, with all the audio mix. And so, oh my gosh, uh, yeah, it was yeah. A, bit of a, a bit of a shocker for the band, just like for the audience, where we were wowed. Is that right? Eh, like just almost overwhelming, eh? Yeah, and I, I really give uh, you know our directors uh, Sam Dunn and uh, Mark Richardelli uh, uh, just full credit because they managed to. Uh, it was completely logical when you see it all assembled. And I think some of the magic that um, really was woven into the story was the sort of quirky nature of all the various people that were interviewed and their, you know, points of view um, into the story. So, you know, the way it was written, it's it's almost like uh, you know, the, the secret sauce is there's no secret sauce, you know, mm. it, it just kind of mm -hmm. dodges left and right. And then it goes up and down without warning. It's like riding a, you know, uh, an eight, you know, a, an all-terrain vehicle through the backwoods or something, because, you know, one minute you're, you've got Steve Wozniak and then the next minute you've got, you know, uh, you know, Larry Gowan from sticks and then you've got the yeah. wives and then you've got, you know, this fan that's in the hospital and it's just, it just goes all over, and, and uh, somehow I think the the thing that is always to be avoided in documentaries is is boring, uh, you know, stale kind of rehashed stories. So they managed to avoid that by this ability to sort of just jump from topic, not only topic to topic, but the diversity of the individuals that participated and the 
um, and and the various uh, archival puzzle pieces that were uh, you know needed into um, this uh, recipe uh, in in such a unique way. So it's um, yeah, it was uh, we were the band was knocked out, and from what we could tell. Um, you know, at the film festival, it, we just got great sort of, you know, st- you know, applause and, you know, enthusiastic response. We had a, um, beside the actual festival showing at the RBC drive-in, uh, RBC through a, a private screening that, that uh, was about 10 minutes later than the official screening. And that was at uh, the Budweiser stage in the big uh, Live Nation owned lake house a facility. So they had 220 people, I believe, uh, there with, uh, you know, a, a vastly uh, augmented sound and um, audiovisual playback within the facility so that everybody had a, a ringside seat. So it was, it was quite an evening. <laughs> now, you mentioned uh, some of the fans and their reaction. I mean, Triumph fans are loyal, they're fierce, uh, you know, they're, they're really a cut above. So, uh, just describe your relationship with the fans, both within, you know, when you were active in the band and really afterwards too, they, they, they've been so loyal to triumph. They really have Tony. And I, I've always felt, uh, you know, a real debt of gratitude right from the early days. Like even for the, you know, when you're starting out and you're playing a, you know, a bar and you know, that group that keeps coming back, you know, two, three times a week or whatever to support you. I mean, that's what, builds your 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 platform really i mean most musicians are familiar with failure i know i was and you know the other guys in triumph were and that's the nature of it you know most musicians are trying to get an audience and they just can't really get one they can't get beyond that little circle of family and friends and you know a few hangers on so when it starts to you know when you roll that boulder and you start to uh gain fans uh, boy, I'll tell you what, I was, I was one person that, you know, I was shocked because of having realized how hard it was before that happened. My bands before Triumph, it was just terribly difficult. Never lost sight of that. And, and to this day, um, you know, they're, as you said, the Triumph fans are, they're just the best. Um, they're so incredibly loyal. And again, back to the documentary, that whole loyalty and the, and the fan relationship became a central part of yeah. the narrative within the documentary. Uh, and it really made it special, you know? And it was one of those things that when when the, the writers suggested this, we thought, I don't know, does that make sense? Like, it would, is that logical? Is that something that we should do? But we just went with sort of blind faith and thought, okay, I guess they know how they're going to shoot it. And it it really does come down to, you know, that directorial insight in right. how do you capture the relationship? You know, like having an idea, like, well, we want to involve the fans. Well, that's a great idea, but how are you going to do it? Uh, well, they did an amazing, amazing job. Now, uh, I mean, I, I think our audience, which uh, is probably of all ages, I got to tell you, so uh, some of them may not be aware because we're, we're talking about ground that was, you know, mid 70s to late 80s, let's say. Um, you packed uh, like stadiums uh you know so maybe describe to our audience what it was like maybe your biggest show i I think there there was like a hundred thousand people at your biggest show or something ridiculous like that so uh, explain that experience well in canada um 
the biggest show that we played was in 1978. We played Canada Jam, which was 100,000 people at Motorsport Raceway. Um, but in the U.S., uh, the biggest show that we played was the Us Festival, which was three or 400,000, oh um, depending on, you know, what story you believe. But it, it, it's one of those shows that was so large that, uh, you know, I, I suppose it's the aerial footage of the event that more so than any kind of a ticket count that really uh, would determine the size. But as far as I know, the largest festival in the history of California uh, right to this day. So that was, um, you know, that was an amazing experience, but we, we played all kinds of big shows. I mean, we, we played the, uh, you know, the Texas jam, we played the, the, you know, the cotton bowl and, and um, uh, the Houston Astrodome for, for that show. Um, you know, we did an outdoor show up in Michigan, the American Rock Festival with Ozzy Osbourne. That was a huge event. Day on the Green, uh, we did more than once in San Francisco at Alameda Stadium. Um, those were some big shows. Uh, also, the T-Bowl down in Orlando, uh, we did that was Easy Top. That was a that was a large crowd. Um, you get used to the larger crowds. I mean, I can. I was asked not too long ago about you know did we get nervous, and I said, well. The first time we played to a large crowd was here in Toronto. We played Ontario Place. Mm-hmm. We had this this horrendous spinning stage. Which, oh, the forum! Yeah, yeah <laughs> if anything was going to make you nervous, it was yeah. being on a spinning stage. Yeah. Um, you know, you felt like a, it was like a wedding cake with you know the bride and the groom spinning on the top. So that was a kind of a a terror. It was terrifying. That's the only word I can use because. You know, we had, none of us had played, you know, large concerts. And that was, I think, seven or 8,000 in the audience. So, but once we got over, you know, once we got over that, and, and, and I'll say playing in, in what I'll call normal venues, not spinning stages, um, very quickly, it just became, okay, this is what we do. And we realized the fans were enthused and they'd been listening to our records. They knew our music. So it was a very welcoming feeling. And, uh, Rick was always a little nervous just because he's a little jumpier than Mike and I. Mike and I pretty much, we were pretty calm walking on right. stage. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, uh, listen, uh, uh, I can only imagine just, just in terms of having that experience. And uh, I think our audience should be aware that at, at times and at peak, you are outselling Led Zeppelin. Okay. So that, 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 that tells me that, that you are definitely a phenomenon and maybe describe to our audience, like you're a power pop trio, which is, you know, the dynamics of that are different uh, than most other rock configurations, which makes it tougher. So t- tell us sort of how you pulled that off. You know, it's a good, a good question, Tony. We all, all the band members, um, we were fans of Jimi Hendrix, of course, and um, the Jimi Hendrix experience was a trio. Um, you know, the, the, uh, band out of, the band out of Texas is one of my favorite bands is ZZ Top. And which, by the way, Banger Films did the ZZ Top documentary immediately prior to doing the Triumph documentary. So <laughs> I was pretty interested in that. Yeah. One. And, yeah. and they were, yeah, ZZ were just a little bit before Triumph. And of course they were three piece. Um, and, and, uh, I was a big fan of the band early on. So, you know, that was one of those, gee, you know, this three piece thing, you know, this is, uh, this is kind of all the bands I've been in were four piece, five piece, six piece, 
Mike Levine, he was in big bands up to eight, nine, you know, he had horns in his bands. Um, you know, Rick had played in some show bands again that were like seven or eight people. So this was a new concept for all three of us, but we just kind of latched on to this idea that we could do it. And I think we got a little bit of, uh, a little bit of inspiration from, from Hendrix, from ZZ Top, and maybe even from, you know, from the guys in Rush, because they were just a shade before us as well. And they had the nerve to try to do it with three musicians and, That's um, right. You know, uh, they did, you know, they've done phenomenally well. So, uh, yeah, we just kind of went for it. But the, the rehearsals, we, we realized very early on um, that even though Rick was, you know, we, we were thinking of Rick as, okay, he's going to sing, he's going to sing lead. But we realized how exhausting it was for him to try to uh, have the theatrical performance that we wanted to have, which involved a lot of, you know, stage, you know, uh, gymnastics and so on and still have to sing and especially singing a lot of high keys. So we kind of rapidly determined that I was going to have to sing a certain number of songs just to balance uh, things out. Right. Um, Cause I, I wasn't really anxious to sing. It was really a means to an end. And, and that was how we were able to function as a three piece. Um, and then we just gradually got comfortable with that. And Rick and I bounced the vocals back and forth and, uh, you know, it was um, it was something that I don't think we ever looked back on that decision and, you know, wished we'd gone a different direction. I think it was uh, it was a good call. No, it's it is. It's a clean sound. Um, you obviously the uh, the audience, your fans can latch on to, you know, clear leadership uh, for you and Mike and 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 Rick. And uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a big I'm a big proponent of uh, that power trio configuration um i'm gonna switch to some of your more recent stuff but i'm gonna uh just uh lob the ball over to jody just for a second he might have a question or two about triumph before i talk about metalworks a little bit jody did anything on your mind no the only thing i was going to bring up when you were talking about crowd sizes and i think it'd be some good advice for tony i don't know if he's mentioned it but he's part of a band called the dock spiders and (laughs) They are doing a performance in a couple weeks at the Perry Sound Pumpkin Festival. <laughs> now, there's going to be close to 63 people there, Gil. Do you have any tips for Tony on like how not to get nervous, You know, get the butterflies out of your stomach, and just focus on the moment? I hate to say this, Jody, but honestly, it's, it's tougher to play to a small audience. And <laughs> I'm not kidding. Um, yeah, no, I believe you. I actually uh, believe you. <laughs> it's... It's all a matter, if you look at it this way, by the time you're playing arenas and you know that, you know, 15,000 people have paid, you know, hard-earned money, they're coming in there to have a good time. So it's just like an NBA basketball game or an NHL hockey game. People paid big money to come into an, a big venue to be with like-minded people, and they want to go rah, rah, rah. So how hard is it for the musicians on stage, really? I mean... You know, I, I used to, to joke and say we could come out on stage and burp and people would, you know, would, would applaud. Not that we would do that, but um, that's a whole different deal when you're in a, in, a, in a bar or, you know, you're at the Perry Sound Pumpkin Festival and you got people that are likely to look at their cell phones or yawn or go and get something to eat. Like, how do you keep them engaged? And, uh, yeah, that's why I say I think it's it's really tough to get that audience engagement. And uh, 
I, I know from bands, you know, my earlier bands, which couldn't get it, you know, and uh, we played the Perry Sound Pumpkin Festival circuit too. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you yeah. work really hard for your fan engagement in those small jobs. You know, my very first gig, by the way, Tony, um, was at a wedding. So when you're oh. on stage up there, you can just think about me playing at a wedding. Oh my gosh. It was at the Constellation Hotel. I'll never forget it. If I lived to be 500. And, you know, there was, I don't know, 50, 60, maybe 70 people um, dancing. And, you know, I'm, I'm a professional drummer, you know, finally. And here I am. And I think I was all of 16 years old. And I was scared to death because I thought, gee, they're all dancing. So if I suddenly fall apart um they're going to stop dancing and they're all going to turn and look at me because i'm the one carrying the rhythm they're dancing to so i felt a tremendous amount of pressure um yeah <laughs> it, it sounds ridiculous but it's true yeah we once played the burks falls bar uh and uh, i was really hoping that they had chicken wire that they could roll up because some of the work <laughs> we were getting from the from the audience were not uh, were not to my liking but uh, so I, I i think you're you're quite right there a little bit closer to the audience in those situations. Uh, I, I do want to talk about Metalworks, but uh, something you just said, I think uh, I'd love to get your perspective on it because music, the distribution of music, the creation of music is so different now than the seventies the and eighties. You've got streaming, you've got TikTok videos, uh, you know, I guess, and you, and I want you to describe this because you teach musicians how to survive in this marketplace. So what, what's your, how do you project some wisdom in, into a, uh, into a world and a marketplace that's just so different now? It's an, it's interesting because, um, one of the, uh, most, uh, ambitious projects that I'm working on right now, and it's an endeavor that's near and dear to my heart is a, uh, cloud-based music collaboration and education platform uh, called Sounds United. It isn't live uh, yet, um, but we have a development team of about 10 uh, uh, coders and computer scientists working on it. And it's based around the notion that music creation should be democratized. Um, it, when I grew up, you know, the barrier to entry was the cost of an acoustic instrument. And you know, in many ways that hasn't changed. I would say now the barrier to entry is the cost of an instrument uh, and also the cost of a computer um, and, an, and a solid internet connection. So if you look at, say, 85% of the world's youth on Android and not uh, on iOS, which we see a lot in Western society with, you know, wealthier parents and so on, giving their kids um, you know, iPhones and, and, and MacBooks that have GarageBand on it. You've got these, uh, this other, you know, huge uh, disenfranchised group of youth. And we're, that's our idea is to try to reach them with, with a freemium product that allows them to, uh, you know, gain the education that they need, as opposed to, you mentioned TikTok. I have nothing against TikTok other than I don't think it's a great, you know, uh, it, it's a great place to have some fun, but it's not a great place to learn. Mm. Um, there's no curated subject matter. Uh, there's no subject matter uh, experts uh, per se. Um, you know, so education has, you know, uh, you know, ped pedagogical 
integrity for a reason. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you need pedagogy to teach people. And, and, and so random searches on online, you know, looking for, uh, you know, uh, some expert at someexpert.com and whatever comes up, comes up. It's not a, not a good way to get into the music space. And, and now that music's become so technical and the proliferation of, um, you know, uh, ubiquitous uh, bandwidth, you know, that we never had before, computer speeds, Moore's Law exploding, et cetera, et cetera, all these things uh, really point to the fact that we need a, a mobile solution uh, for young people that want to get into music. And, uh, you know, they need to be able to uh, access you know, some free content. They need to be able to get it on mobile. Um, that's where we're headed with it. Right. What does that do? It Back to what I said in the first sentence about really democratizing, you know, the entry to the tent, as I'll say, the music tent, suddenly the doors swing open and you've got cultures that can now, in a cloud environment, collaborate from halfway around the world versus, say, when I started, when all the guys in my band had to live you know, they, they all went to my school. They were all in the same neighborhood, um, which is the same for all the bands like Lennon and McCartney, you know, same school. Um, you know, the the uh, it, just about any artist that you can point to that's a, a, a legacy artist, you're going to find there was this geographic, uh, you know, uh, uh, component to how they found each other which doesn't need to be there anymore. You know, right. we can we can go worldwide in our quest to find uh, collaboration. And uh, and uh, really, the era of the global band, I believe, is uh, it, it, or the global artist is really upon us. I, I got to ask you, because, because uh, people should know how business savvy you are. You've got Metalworks as a recording studio. You've got an equipment rental arm, and you've got this education arm. Um, and I, I know you're passionate about teaching new musicians that this is a business too. So maybe just elaborate on that a little bit. Well, our, our bricks and mortar school, our campus school is Metalworks Institute. Um, and it's adjacent to Metalworks Studios. So it's, it's right in the heart of Mississauga and it's a private career college registered with the ministry of education, in the province of Ontario. We're very proud of it. We have another school, a similar school in New Brunswick, and um, we're expanding our, our uh, educational reach right now uh, to collaborate with uh, other public colleges and universities. We've got about a dozen relationships that we're working on right now. Many of them we signed NDAs on, so I can't really elaborate on who they are, or, but the, I guess I can elaborate on the notion. And the notion is essentially to say to the world, um, you know, Canada EDU is the best education brand on the planet, and we want to be at the forefront uh, of music education and, and taking that Canada brand, uh, you know, to the world stage. So that's what we're doing in the school. Um, Sounds Unite, as I was just mentioning that I, I talked about, you know, is kind of a, a, a brainchild of, of that thinking. Um, and even though it's it's more... Uh, I suppose, uh, similar to some of the larger universities with MOOC programs and so on to give people free content. Um, it's We feel it's a, a very, very unique idea that will spread the message of our, our campus school at the same time 
as giving a lot of younger kids uh, a free opportunity to get into the music space and the music tech space. Right on. So, so important what you're doing there for sure. And, uh, I, I wish you well with that. Um, I guess, uh, at this point, it probably would be good to let our audience know, uh, where they can, uh, see Triumph Rock and Roll Machine. When's it coming out? How's it being distributed? Has that been decided yet? Uh, somewhat in Canada, uh, Bell Media, um, is the distributor of the film, so they will be broadcasting it on free TV on the CTV okay. National Network. Great. Uh, we're anticipating that's going to be either late in the uh, fourth quarter of this year or perhaps uh, in the uh, first quarter of 2022. But it's, th- it's, it's in their control, not our control. That's, that's what we've been advised. After the free broadcast... Uh, it'll be available on Crave on their streaming network. Oh, right on. You know, Good. for, you know, in perpetuity, I suppose. In America, um, the film is premiering at the Philadelphia International Film Festival next month. And the uh, U.S. distributor is in negotiations with various streamers and also possibly um, exhibitors. So there may be a cinema run. Um not sure if there'll be one in Canada or not, or, or really the U S it's just something that uh, I know the film company's working on. So, uh, but we'll see that'll all, I I'm going to say probably roll out again, Q1 2022. Okay. Well, best of luck with that Gil and congratulations. I know you put a lot of time and effort into that movie and, uh, as you continue to do with Metalworks. So, uh, you're a good man in the Canadian music industry. So keep it up. Thanks, Tony. <laughs> Excellent discussion with Gil. Tony, one question I wanted to ask you while it's still fresh in my mind. A, do the Doc Spiders play any Triumph songs? And if you don't, which one would you add to your repertoire? Oh, I, I love Magic Power. I, I think that's such a great song. Um, and Rick Emmett's vocals are I, do you are you familiar with his vocals, Jody? He's He's got an amazing voice. Um, so that one would be right up there. I don't choose the songs for the Doc Spiders. That is done by Cal, the band, the band leader, and he is fairly autocratic about it. <laughs> so I don't, I don't have, I don't have a lot of say in it, I'm afraid, but. Uh, so you're not, Triumph is not part of your set list. At it's the not part of my set list. No, but okay. I would I, I dearly love it to be, that's for sure. Because uh, those, those songs, they live on and on and on. And I, I think they're finding new audiences. A lot of these classic rock bands are finding, uh, uh, whether it's through TikTok or or just uh, the the churn of social media, that uh, these uh, these songs are are becoming important to them. Like you, you look at uh, Bohemian Rhapsody about, from Queen, you know, in the in the mid seventies, and uh, then it kind of died off, and then um, then uh, because of Mike Myers, uh, it became a hit again, and now it's all of a sudden because of the movie. Uh, of the same name, it's been a hit again, but with a much younger generation. So these these songs get they they, they get recycled, which is wonderful. That's a great thing about rock and roll, I think. Yeah, no, totally true. And yeah, that was a good uh, good conversation. Lots going on yeah. there, and so many of those songs I remember from my first on air gig at the Wolf in Peterborough. I think a Triumph song was like every third oh, song. Yeah every third song that he played and we played, I should say. And 
I'm Tons glad they're doing the movie because, and, and you know, Gil made this point that they, they were, they were so, they were huge. Like people don't realize just how big they were. And uh, the, I, I think the, the documentary goes into what happened, uh, you know, Rick walking away. He just, you know, there's a lot of reasons why that happened, but they, they were as big as big can get in rock and roll for a time. Yeah, no, totally. And of course, I know that you only watch documentaries on IMAX, so we'll have to wait for that. That's right. You got and it. See if Gil has any any word on the IMAX release. Exactly. Oh, that would be amazing. Do mo- is it is it like hush hush that you have a an IMAX theater in your house or no? Do <laughs> well, people know that? Do uh, people know that? People think it's in the gazebo. I think. <laughs> oh, oh, Tony went oh, there. I went Ooh. there. Oh, too much. Too much. All right, so big shout out to Municipal Solutions for their continuing support, as well as Looney Politics. Uh, don't forget to find them at looneypolitics.com. And you can find out all of all about our sponsors. In fact, even some of the ones that still aren't paying us by going to <laughs> and another thing podcast.ca. That's true. So, <laughs> true story. <laughs> links there at uh, at all times for your leisure. So we will uh, we'll do this again in seven days, Tony. Looking forward to it, buddy.